listening to the best of the Martha Zoller Show. To hear the full show each day, tune in to AM550 and FM102.9 WDUN or log in to accesswdun.com and click the Listen Live button from 9 to 11, Monday through Friday. Joining me right now is Anne-Marie Burkle. She's a former congresswoman, a former nurse, uh, former Consumer Product Safety Commission chairwoman. Uh, and she asked an important question. Um, why is there no no health care agenda for any of the GOP hopefuls? And I would say, Anne-Marie, first of all, welcome to the program. It's so great to have you. Um, we spend about half of the money in the federal government on health care programs, probably more than that. You probably know the number. Uh, and nobody's talking about it. Good morning, Martha. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's it's really disappointing, both personally and politically, that the Republicans just don't have a health care agenda. And I'll, I'll say worse than that, they're following the lead of Bernie Sanders, who's the chairman of the Health Committee in the Senate. And so he's coming up with his socialist ideas, and they're you know, pretty much lock and step with him, which is a huge mistake. Uh, they, they have an opportunity here to really address what's on the minds of the American people, and that is um, the cost of health care, the availability of health care, and making sure, you know, they have access to it. And they're, they're just failing. I think it's a big mistake politically. So why do you think they're doing this? Well, okay. Or I'm, not I doing thinking, it, I guess I should say. <laughs> I mean, it's it's very, what's going on in this country right now, there's a lot to think about. Inflation, immigration, crime, drug overdoses. There's no budget for 2024. There's so many things to be thinking about. But health care is an issue that's just as important as those other issues. They're just, it's just not as, I'll say, sexy as, and apparent as, as the, those issues are. But Republicans have got to focus on what's important to the American people. Um, 54% of the Republicans in this country say health care is their primary issue. They've got other issues, you know, immigration, inflation, and so many other things, but they are concerned that health care continues to get ex- more expensive and the availability of health care is becoming an issue. Um, you know, the Senate and Chuck Schumer is, is focusing on putting together a health care bill, and it would be one bill with sev- several uh, smaller bills within it that address health care, all led by Bernie Sanders. One of them is to uh, get rid of or weaken what's known as a PBM, a pharmacy benefit manager, which if you have a health care plan, more likely than not, you have a PBM, and that's that entity negotiates with drug companies to get drug prices down with for your health care plan. To weaken those or to get the FTC involved, which is what this bill proposes, is a huge mistake. Every Republican should stand against it, uh, and they're not. Uh, they're not looking at health care for free market approaches or for free market solutions. They're just following along with Bernie Sanders, and that's I think politically wrong. So, uh, you know, obviously after ACA, uh, it is true that if more people are insured. Uh, that is true. But uh, the cost is about twice what it was uh, in just that short period of time. Uh, I'm having my knee replaced on Thursday. Okay. I am 
64 years old. I'm a, I'm a small business owner. So, uh, you know, we have a small group. And I'm going to get, you know, it's I've got pretty good coverage, okay? But I'm still going to, you know, I am paying a much higher premium than I was. I, in fact, I jokingly say it's a good thing my house is paid off because I have I pay a very large health care premium in my age group for this because it's a small group. And then every year, it almost seems like the company that was doing our small group coverage for the nurse. We actually, my husband and I have a correctional nursing business. Uh, the, the company goes out, they stop doing small groups, and then you've got to find another company to do it. And that's a common problem that small businesses are having. So what is it going to take? to get um, get Republican and Democrat candidates more focused on this in a real way? Well, I, I, again, I think it's the Republican leadership who needs to acknowledge that this is an issue and that the American people are concerned about it. Um, and, and again, there's so many things they could be doing. They could be modernizing and overhauling the FDA, which has archaic um you know, approval processes that take so long. They could be, uh, I'm sure you've seen in your area, confronting a hospital monopoly. So many small hospitals have merged into these huge systems. That needs to be looked at. There's a lot of dishonest billing, and that drives up costs, uh, dishonest billing going on with these healthcare conglomerates. And so the Republicans need to stand up and say, in 2010, we, and quite frankly, they weren't successful, but they addressed and they told the American people they would begin to address the Affordable Care Act that you just referred to and that they would repeal and replace it. Um, and, and in that Congress, they won 63 seats, a Republican majority in the House. So it's on the minds of the American people. The Republican leadership has to acknowledge that and then they have to give some concrete examples of how they're going to, how they're going to move forward with health care plan. And I politically, and, and I'll say personally, you know, I'm a nurse. I've spent my whole life in one way, shape, or form related to health care. Um, you know, I had elderly parents. I had a handicapped sister. Health care affects everyone. Health care is something that really you can't get away from it, whether you're healthy or you're sick. You're talking about a knee replacement. And for small businesses, it's very troubling because the small businesses, so, for instance, the Senate uh, last week has been, over the past several weeks, has been talking about capping insulin prices, which sounds so great. But they're only capping the price at what the consumer will pay at the pharmacy. They're not going back further to say, no, no, we've got to cap what a drug manufacturer can charge for their insulin. That's how you're going to cut costs. You can't, you cannot. Um, just say, okay, well, we're going to limit what the patient pays at the pharmacy to $30. But on the back end, the, pharma- the drug manufacturer can charge whatever he wants. There are things that they can do, and I would say to the Republicans, because I want them to win the majority, I want them to stay in control of the House and, and gain the Senate. But well, I mean, the insulin can- situation makes me so mad because if you know <sighs> the history of how that came about, how that patent came about, how all that, did, you know, happened. It shouldn't be expensive. I mean, it, it's, it really shouldn't be. But, you know, it is what it is. and um, It is what it is. You're and, right. I mean, it is one uh, dollar of every four in healthcare spent on some kind of diabetes management. And so, you know, it's a big problem uh, that we have. And, look, I'm a, I'm a free market 
person on health care. My husband was a solo primary care physician, so he was a dinosaur. He did his whole practice until five years ago as a as a solo practitioner. Uh, and now he's a uh, the doctor at our at our detention center uh, here in Hall County. So um, and it, and it's really a pleasant job because there's no insurance. <laughs> you get you get just <laughs> you get paid at the first of the month, and that's great, you know. Um, but it's it's there is such a challenge, and I think during COVID, some people saw that maybe there ought to be a basic level of care that's available. But the challenge is you can't negotiate with Democrats on that because they want to include everything as being basic. I think there's a mood in this country, and I could be wrong, you've got more data than I do, that some sort of basic care being covered, I think most people could support. But it's what is the definition of basic. You're, you're, you're absolutely right. I think that, um, and there certainly is an interest and an appetite in the American people to know that when they need a primary care physician, there's going to be one. But that's what the, one of the things the Affordable Care Act did. It promised all this care, but then it doesn't help. You know, if you're a uh, primary care physician, family physician, pediatrician, psychiatry, those non-specialty, I'll call them, areas, the reimbursements and the way doctors get paid, it's unsustainable. If you have a, you know, a $500,000 debt coming out of medical school and then you go into one of those practices, everyone becomes specialized. Well, I mean, I can I can tell you that if I had known our best year was going to be 1998, <laughs> as far as payments were concerned, I mean, and it's not that we've done poorly. We've had a great life related to my husband's um, primary care practice. It's wonderful. But it was a it was a challenge. I mean, it was a real management kind of thing because the payments, the reimbursements started going down and you had to see more and more and more people to make it viable. And, you know, and the biggest lie we tell people is that, you know, if you if you don't have insurance, you can't see a doctor because a lot of doctors, my husband always had, we always had payment plans for people. We never turned anybody away that was sick that needed a, needed a doctor. We never did that. And I think most doctors would not do that. But now that most doctors work for big medical groups it makes it harder for them to have those kind of policies so that's so so true that now that they're working for hospital systems rather than private practices they they lose they lose that kind of control and that you know where they can have that kind of discretion and again that's a problem because hospital systems if you're going to see your doctor who's a member of one of those conglomerates and not in his own they can what they're doing and there's legislation that's being uh, introduced to address this, they're billing the patient at the hospital rate rather than the physician rate, which is much higher, which is a big problem, which is driving up the cost of health care. There's many things that Republicans can do. Uh, I'll give you another example because you raised the issue of insulin. And Mike Lee had a bill, um, has a bill introduced, but the introduction of biosimilars and the ability to get those approved more quickly. If a drug can address the uh, the issue and is the same as the uh, name brand drug, they should be approved after, obviously, after appropriate amount of testing and, and uh, review. But that's, again, you get competition, you get, um, and you don't get the protection and you, uh, the pharmaceuticals aren't protected with their name brand. And, and those biosimilars can be very effective in reducing the cost of drugs. Um, again, so many things the Republicans could do if they didn't follow the lead of a, you know, an avowed socialist Bernie Sanders 
if they understood how concerned the American people are about it, and how if they understood the issues. Again, I'll go back to PBMs and the pharmacy benefit managers. That program and those entities save each each patient in this country a thousand dollars a year in drug costs. They're the only the only entity on that drug supply chain that are financially um, interested in reducing the cost of drugs. And so Marie, to get rid of them. Anne Marie Burkle, people want to know more information. How can they get it? Uh, I have a Twitter account, and I will send that to you, Martha, and maybe you could post it on your, uh, it's just uh, at Am Burkle, um, but I can send that to you so you have that, Great. Uh, my Twitter handle, and uh, really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you this morning, and I hope your knee surgery on Thursday goes extremely oh, well. I think it will. Recovery. Yeah, it's all about the rehab. <laughs> anyway, exactly that's right. right. That's right. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Martha. It's where North Georgia comes to talk. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. You know, one of the people that were not on the stage last night was Larry Elder, who is um, a radio talk show host, but he also ran for governor of California. But his whole message is about fathers and fatherhood. And uh, I've talked to Meg Meeker a number of times, Dr. Meg Meeker, a number of times over the years on the book she's written on parenting. But she had a new thing out that was turned into a movie and it's called strong fathers strong daughters and the movie is on a great american family and it was fantastic and i've watched it It was great meg welcome back to the program it's great to have you here oh thanks so much for having me martha you know whether you're talking about fathers which is what you talk about or this whole kind of phenomenon that's happening around this um folk singer um, um, Oliver Anthony that's talking about uh, men being underestimated. Basically, the whole message is is that, you know, you're kind of throwing men out. Um, Mm -hmm. We have this society that has been telling men um, that they don't have to be a good father. They don't have to be a good provider. And that somehow that traditional role is not a good one. Mm -hmm. You know, As a pediatrician, I'm a kid advocate, and I've taken care of thousands of kids and listened to them talk about their dads, whether their dads are at home with them, whether their dads have abandoned them, whether they've never met their dad. And I can tell you that universally, kids say, I want my dad. I need my dad. A good dad doesn't have to have a Ph.D. in psychology to connect with his kids. Kids want their fathers with them. They ache for it. And, you know, unfortunately, our culture is controlling the narrative of my patient's fathers and how they perceive themselves. And we have, because of political correctness or our own agendas, you know, as adults, we have pushed fathers out of the way. We've thrown them into orbit. This is killing our kids. We have so much research that shows that girls and boys who have a daughter, a father in the home, they are less likely to be depressed, anxious, eating disorders. They graduate from high school. They go on to uh, college and graduate school. It's absolutely irrefutable that a child with a father at home 
does better across the board. You know, and we're at a point where we have a crisis of mental health among our teenagers. We have depression and, and anxiety going through the roof. And what I see as a huge part of the answer is dads being engaged in the home. So we as adults got to get over our bias about, you know, you know, that, that anybody can raise a child as long as they're loved and say, look, this is what our kids need to get healthy mental health back. And it's their dads. And I'm just amazed that more people aren't speaking up on behalf of kids. We're talking to Dr. Meg Meeker, and the movie is called Strong Fathers, Strong Daughters, and it premiered on Great American Media uh, on August 21st, and it's currently streaming on Pure Flix. Um, it's, it's a story. This this is a tr- regular movie. It's kind of a, a Hallmark-style mm-hmm. movie, if, mm-hmm. if I can use that. Uh, sure. but, but it is tells the story of what you're trying to say about fathers. Absolutely. You know, it's... Um, it's a great movie. It's a feel-good movie. But the point of the movie is that a good dad makes an enormous difference in a daughter's life. Uh, and not just, you know, his oldest daughter, but his middle daughter as well. And it shows the power of a decent, normal, good guy dad. I mean, you know, this guy is um, just an invested dad who wants to do well by his daughter, but he's taking her in the wrong direction. And he's corrected and said, no, you really need to understand what's going on with your daughter here. I love the movie. I will tell you, I've seen it four or five times. At the end of the movie, I always cry, that yellow balloon. (laughs) (laughs) I love a good movie. I love a good movie that makes me cry. Rod Huey's here with me today. Rod Huey's here with me today, Pastor Rod Huey. And and I know in the work you do in your church that this role of families Mm -hmm. and in your own life, I mean, you're the father of children Mm -hmm. and grandchildren and all of that. How important has that message been and how have you seen it under assault over the years? It is so important. I am so excited to hear what she's saying because you're right. You're absolutely right. There's a power uh, of the power of the dad. And, and, you know, what happens is so many men feel like they have to be perfect that they run away from what uh, from being a father, not realizing being a provider. Uh, sometimes is all they need. Provide love, provide, uh, you know, that, that energy, provide that security. And you go, well, what about the money? Do the best that you can. It's, you know, being a great father doesn't mean you got to have all the money, but it, it means you got to be willing, you know, to do what you have to do to provide. You know, you're absolutely right, and I can tell you firsthand, I've been at this for 34 years and listened to these kids. Kids don't care about the money. (laughs) When I ask kids, what do you love about your dad? What do you like about your dad? They say this, he's fun to be with. He listens to me. He takes me fishing. He he taught me to change the oil in my car, maybe from a 10-year-old girl. They never mention the size of their house. They never mention uh, dad's job. They never mention whether they're wealthy or poor. Kids are born to connect with people they love. And if they don't have that deep connection, nothing else in life matters. And we don't focus on that. We focus on all the externals. And 
I just feel very, very strongly that rather than criticizing men for never being around and, you know, and, and being gone and, you know, they're bad people because they've never shown up for their kids. Look, let's turn it around. Let's say, you know what, you guys, oh, you can it. do this. I've, I've had kids. I've had kids in my office who are dying to see their dad who's in prison. But whose mom says, no, 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 he's a bad example for you. But the kids said, but he's my dad. Can't I just see him? You see, kids are connected to their dads. And even if the dad has made a lot of mistakes, the kid has the ability to look at that dad and see the goodness in there that they need. We need to be strong enough to allow them to have that. If Meg, Dr. Meg Meeker, if people want more information, how can they get it? Go to uh, MeekerParenting.com, MeekerParenting.com, and help me champion our dads. You know, we need strong voices out there to to speak on behalf of our kids because we're in trouble with our kids, and having dads engaged is an enormous part of the answer. It's so simple. Putting the talk in news talk. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. Joining me right now is Matt Brown. Finally, after all of these weeks of talking about all of this, we had uh, the piece de resistance yesterday when the former president goes in and gets a mugshot. And and really, all anybody's, it's like the mugshot heard around the world, Matt. Yeah, after so many weeks and months of discussing this and figuring out what the charges were going to be and everything, we finally have now seen Trump actually go down to Rice Street and, you know, see his, um, and, you know, have his mugshot taken, you know, be, have it, have his inventory taken, just like any other, um, you know, indicted person in Fulton County. I mean, it, which is honestly just the most surreal thing that the entire world, as you said, has been taking part in. I mean, I, I saw, cover front pages not just from the ajc with including the mugshot or the, or the washington post but but from around the world i mean there, papers were, there were people all around on... the world and you know you could argue you know the purpose of a mugshot as shondell has pointed out the purpose of a mugshot is so that in a trial you can identify a person when you are looking for a person you've, you're talking to witnesses you can identify the person and there's a lot of people that kind of look like each other okay and so mugshots are so that you can di- differentiate people there isn't it a person under a rock in the anywhere in the world that doesn't know what Donald Trump looks like. It it did seem like a bit of overkill to me. Yeah, I think that I think that the Fulton County Sheriff made clear that Trump is not going to be treated any differently than anyone else in um, you know the Fulton County justice system. However, as you said, Trump is not like anyone else. He is <laughs> the um, former president of the United States, who before that was a massive media celebrity. So. So this is just a completely surreal situation where you're applying, you know, like the normal Georgia laws and normal county procedures to a man who is, you know, larger than life in so many ways. So I think that this is really just another example of, you know, the the reality distortion field of Donald Trump just coming into contact with, um, you know, our our normal mortal institutions and seeing which one's going to cave first. It also kind of killed the discussion of the debate on Wednesday night. And uh, we that's going to play into something at some point in time. But what are you looking for now? We've gotten to this moment. We've crossed over the Rubicon. Now we've got motions about trials and all this kind of stuff. What are you following right now? 
I'm especially interested in if the different interests of all of the co-defendants in the Fulton County case are actually going to end up aligning here. I mean, we've already seen, you know, Sean Still and, um, you know, Trevion Cucci, like, just there's a lot of um, Jenna Ellis has been tweeting, you know, sometimes in alignment with what with Trump's interests, sometimes in, in difference with Trump's interests. It's just going to be very interesting to see if all these 19 people are going to start rowing in the same direction on this case and, and, and become an agreement in opposition to Fani in terms of when these trial dates are going to be set, what the um, general arguments are going to be presented in court, or if you're going to start seeing a splintering of that group. I think that's going to be really the most important thing, because especially from a political perspective, that might influence when you start having these trial dates and you start having these hearings, which then could obviously run into the, the primary schedule, the general election schedule. So Shondell Summers here with me today, and of course she has a lot of experience related to uh, the legal system. And of course, right before the former president uh, presented himself, uh, it was announced that his main representation was changed uh, to an Atlanta-based attorney. Now, there's been some talk about a bunch of his own attorneys have been charged, so you can't use those. <laughs> and then you've—he's got a lot of people. He's got a very, let's say, mobile legal team because. He's hard to work for, number one. He doesn't listen, number two. But also, there are situations where they can't work for him. He now has an Atlanta attorney. Do you know anything about this attorney? And <laughs> and, will that, ask. and will that push out anything? Because it seems like that's a legitimate thing to say, hey, I've just gotten a new attorney. I need time. Well, Steve Sadow is his new attorney. His previous attorney was Drew Finling, who's also an Atlanta-based attorney. But uh, Steve Sadow and I go way back. In fact, um, he and Dan are from the same hometown. So um, when we when Dan moved down here, he was already here. And we're social friends. We're professional friends. I've worked on cases with him. So, uh, we, in fact, I ran into him at a party last week on Thursday, and we were talking about the case. And I was kind of getting vibes um, that maybe he was going to be getting involved, but of course he couldn't talk about it. So um, it didn't really come as a great shock to me. And the thing about Steve is he's known for uh, being the head of the ticket when it comes to the lawyers involved in any large defendant case. Um, he did the Gold Club case, if you remember that from a years years ago, and he represented the main owner of the Gold Club. And he basically was sort of keeping everybody on the same track um, and was, I think, probably disappointed when lawyers went their own way. So I think you'll see him kind of trying to rein in all the other lawyers and saying, hey, look, all for one, one for all here. Um, but already you've got Cheesebro filing the speedy trial demand. And like I said, what that means is his case is going to be severed off. He's going to go first. And if he goes first, that possibly could take the wind out of her sails on all those other people. Because if you lose one, that's going to be the headline. If he gets convicted, that might mean all those other people, especially if he gets time. Um, if he gets convicted, that may, might mean all those other people start running for cover and making deals with the DA for and their that, testimony. What you're saying fits into what Matt was just saying about people want to know where all this is going to go. Is it going to be people independently working on things or is there going to be a, a clear consensus on this? Matt Brown from the Washington Post, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. To hear the full versions of last week's Martha Zoller shows, go to the podcast page at accesswdun.com. And you can follow me on social media at Martha Zoller.